place it comfortably. I've often mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again, that um, um, before I start talking, it's actually the best part of the Dharma talk. <laughs> and that leads me into what I want to talk about today, which is suchness. Um, suchness is such a beautiful word, there's something onomatopoeic about it to me, it kind of... Um, uh, there's something in the sound of the word expresses what it means. Um, but in other words, suchness is life as it is. Just life as it is, the experience of it. Before we put any judgment on it, analyse it, have any thoughts about it, just the sound of the rain on the roof before I started talking. Mm-hmm. It's suchness. And in terms of my um, Joko, my teacher's teaching, um, she just came back to this over and over and over and over again. It's a thing that she, she drummed into us. Do you know, Dharma talk after Dharma talk of coming back to life as it is. Mm-hmm. And surrendering the ego demands of what I want, what I don't want, what I I should be doing, what you should be doing, Um, ideas about fairness or unfairness or favourable or unfavourable, better or worse, just them all dropping away, all dropping away, and when they all drop away, we just experience life as it is, suchness. Now, if we want to put more fancy philosophical words to it, you know, to understand it within um, Zen literature or Buddhist literature. Um, Suchness, or life as it is, is the absolute. The absolute in in Zen is not some absolute principle or something. The absolute is just this moment as it is, unadorned, before we judge it or think about it. Mm -hmm. And the relative is um, then all the ways that we um, describe it, you know, or may divide it up in terms of better or worse or right or wrong, um, or analyse things and break things down into bits and pieces, mm-hmm. measure it, time, distance, mm-hmm. all of that is the relative world, and they're not, they're not two, they're one, mm-hmm. um, it's all one piece, um, but it is, it is the nature of practice that we're seeing through this conceptual framework that we create through which we see the world. And it's not just intellectual, it's like everyone does it. It's all to do with better and worse, really, is what it comes down to. And we want the better and we don't want the worse. We want the favourable circumstances and not the unfavourable. But when we come back to seeing life just as it is, just come back to this moment, like it's just the wind blowing through the trees and it's a rainy day and it's cold. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting here, it's just life as it is. It's, when, you, when you get past the, all the intellectual conceptualising that goes on, it's not a better or worse, it just is. Mm-hmm. 
and it's coming, that's the, that's the basic teaching of Zen, is to come back to this experience of suchness and to bring it into our lives. And we learn that through just sitting. If we can, if we can practice just sitting um, and just being with our experience as it is, including our, our inner experience of ourselves, and we do it over and over again, we, we start to see the suchness in everything that we do in life. So one of the most well-known expressions in, in Zen is that all the Zen teachers use and it permeates the literature. It's just this, you know, just this, just this. Just sitting, just walking, just listening to the sound on the roof, just raining. Mm-hmm. Only this. But all, all Zen teaching brings us back to the primary unadorned experience of life before we judge it. And that's, that's what our practice is all about. Now, the nature of that suchness is that sometimes it's predictable. It has its own routines like spring becoming summer and summer becoming autumn and autumn becoming winter and the seasons and things like that. And the certain rules that human beings follow, you know, they give it a certain routine or regularity, like session. But also what happens in the suchness of things is randomness. Mm-hmm. You suddenly walk around the corner and you bump into someone. Mm-hmm. Um, or something suddenly falls on your foot. Mm-hmm. Or you just suddenly meet a friend you haven't met for a long time. Mm-hmm. Randomness also occurs in life. And are we ready to meet the unexpected? Mm-hmm. A mind that's free from judgment, you know, grasping and aversion, is just ready to re- meet the moment as it arises mm-hmm. and respond to it. So suchness is about just being, but life is also about doing. So there's being and there's doing. And if we experience just the suchness of things, then, and we're there with it, without all of this ego demand on how it should or shouldn't be, then we're we're ready just to respond to it appropriately too. The, The natural responses come forth, or the initiations come forth. And um, going back to the first talk I gave about St. Francis. Um, since I gave that talk, um, I've just been reflecting during the breaks so on a, third, a thought about St. Francis and the life of St. Francis and the life of the Buddha, which kind of disturbed me. You know, and I want to share it with you. But um, in the life of um, St. Francis, one of the turning points in his life, like his, his conversion, to use a Christian term, or his conversion towards realisation, is that he was walking out in the countryside and he randomly came across a group of lepers, because lepers had to live outside the town so they wouldn't contaminate anyone else and they had to wear a bell so that people knew they were coming and they were kind of shunned. And he randomly um, bumps into a group of lepers and he's so moved by their suffering that what does he do? He, he responds by 
engaging with them and being with them and cleaning their wounds. Right? An act of service, an act of compassion, he just comes forward and does that. And what disturbed me, but I'll go on to the resolution of it, what disturbed me is in the life of the Buddha, the life of the Buddha, the story is that he, he goes outside the palace walls um, in this kind of idyllic kind of existence and he comes across um, a sick person, an old person and a dead person and a monk. But we never hear anything in the story that he goes over to the sick person and helps them, or the old person. All we hear in the story is that that became a trigger to his own existential crisis. So what he does is he goes off on a a very long meditation retreat to resolve his existential crisis. And and what disturbed me is compared to St Francis, if you think of the, the selflessness, right, St. Francis is just responding to the sick person as an immediate act of selflessness, mm-hmm. which makes the Buddha almost look like a little bit narcissistic <laughs> in comparison. And go off, oh man, you know, <laughs> sick people, old people, oh, I better go off to a meditation retreat and, you know, resolve my existential angst. Yeah. Okay. But, the Buddha sees that, that's the trigger to something, and he withdraws from his life of privilege and all of his wealth and status and all the favourable conditions that have been bestowed on him and gives it all away and lives a life of poverty and is determined to resolve this dilemma. Mm-hmm. Why is there suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. And after all of his meditating, he realises, oh, there's actually no self. Mm-hmm. And he realises suchness. Mm-hmm. It's just life as it is. He looks up one morning after meditating all through the night and sees the morning star. and goes, ah, it's just the morning star. Mm-hmm. And it's just the flowers. And it's just the sky. And it's just my experience of sitting in this body. That's all there is. He has an experience of the absolute. Mm-hmm. And that's what wisdom is. Mm-hmm. is. Is really seeing, really seeing clearly, not intellectually, but really seeing clearly the suchness of all that is. And what's there in the suchness of all that is, what the nature of it is, is the interbeing of everything that is that everything relies on everything else for existence and there's no separateness. Mm -hmm. And you see it even in biology. You know, human beings breathe in oxygen and give out carbon dioxide and the flowers go, thank you human beings, we want to breathe in, we want to take in the the, the the carbon dioxide and breathe out the oxygen. Human beings say thank you to the flowers. giving off the oxygen everything is interconnected everything just as it is as it is no good or bad, no better or worse Mm -hmm. weeds are weeds flowers are flowers one is not better or worse Mm -hmm. that's what the Buddha saw and so he goes off and he cultivates wisdom first he gets that wisdom, that insight, 
and then he decides, well, I'm not just going to sit here on my backside for the rest of my life blissed out, I'm going to give a, go into a life of service. He's moved by compassion to that go out and then bring this teaching to everyone. So he gets the wisdom first, then he goes to the compassion. Mm-hmm. And St. Francis was just a young man, you know, I think early 20s, mid-20s, when he had this conversion experience when he saw the lepers. So he, he didn't really know much about what he was doing then. It was kind of like, in a Christian sense, he was just kind of zapped by God, you know. And God said, okay, son, you're, gonna, you're on your way to sainthood. Mm-hmm. He didn't really know what he was doing. He was just responding selflessly. Something in him just responded to the lepers to look after them rather than just following his own self-interest. But the St Francis also not just lived a life of service, he also lived a life of simplicity and contemplative prayer. You know, so as he, as he grows and he matures, um, he develops wisdom too. Mm-hmm. So one may lead to the other, but the, the life of, um, of realisation includes both in some way. So all of our practice brings us back to suchness and we call it by more fancy names like enlightenment and so on, realisation, awakening, but it's just coming back to life as it is. Mm -hmm. And as you read in all of the Zen literature, is that if we think we do this practice to progress towards something called realisation or awakening, we're immediately off the mark. Mm -hmm. Because life as it is always existed. It always was. And if we think that we're going to practice, oh, I'm going to practice and then I'm going to improve my concentration and then... I'll purify myself and then I'll have this realisation experience. Well, in a linear kind of sense, yeah, that's what happens. But in an absolute sense, that's just a lot of nonsense. That, that's part of the realisation is to realise there is, if, if you take a step, if you think you're progressing towards something, you're already one step away from it. Mm-hmm. It already is. So we don't progress towards maturity in, in, in Zen practice so much, is that we, um, we drop into life as it is. Mm-hmm. We, we just let go of all the stuff that's blocking us and we just drop into it. We drop into what was always there right from the very beginning. So. Ideas about becoming enlightened and so on, or even worse, you know, well, I've become enlightened, it's just rubbish. It's nonsense. Mm-hmm. If our true nature is just life as it is right from the very beginning, how can we claim to have, you know, got something? Mm-hmm. Got something. It's already there. Mm-hmm. And if we have any kind of true realisation experience, it's not self-inflating, it's, it's not 
inflating the self, it, it's humbling. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, duh, that's so dumb. I thought it was this, but it's actually, it was just here all the time, and I just dropped into it. I didn't progress towards it. I didn't achieve anything. How could I achieve something that was already here? That's the nature of the experience. And, and in that experience, the ego just kind of dissolves. It kind of becomes a bit irrelevant, really. And in Zen practice, the, um, in a sense, the purest, clearest, most simple form of practice is shikantaza, you know, just sitting. And you probably, I've given talks on this before, you, you need to, to go through preliminary practices like breath counting and thought labouring, you know, before you're actually mature enough to do um, shikantaza, which means just sitting. Just sitting. In other words, it's just dropping into that life of as it is experience without any idea of gaining enlightenment or becoming better or self-improvement. Just dropping into what is and absorbing it and absorbing it and absorbing it mm -hmm. until you know it in your bones. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of practicing. And the other particular practice which is peculiar to Zen is koan practice. But it all leads to the same place. And, and koan practice leads us back, all koans lead us back to just this. Every time, every koan brings you back to just this. Mm -hmm. But the way koans work, there, there, is, there is kind of a bit of trickery in it bit of skullduggery in it. Because koans are kind of like getting, getting a person saying, okay, I'm going to put you in this room and um, you're trapped in this room because there's no, no key to get out of the room. And, you know, you may want to try and find a key, but there isn't a key to get out of the room. But you've got to get out of the room. That's your task, to get out of the room. And so... When we're caught up in all of our thinking and so on, we go, right, well, you know, I've got to find the key, then, I, then I'll be able to get out. And I'll look here, and I'll look there, and I'll look there. I can't find the key. Can't get out. We may, stay, we may spend days in the room thinking we're trapped in the room, you know, and we, or months or years, you know. Um, but then we realised the door wasn't locked in the first place wasn't even locked in the first place. All you had to go over was turn the handle and out you go. Mm -hmm. But we, the reason why we have koans is that, that they're, they're good actually for, um, for people who are somewhat um, intellectual, but they can be useful for any, anyone because it's kind of like, um, kind of like a bit of homeopathic medicine. You know, it's like a little bit of poison can do you good. Uh, and so with, it sort of captures, you know, a, a koan, like stop the sound of that distant mountain bell, captures the intrigue of our intellect, like, yeah, well, I, 
I'm going to solve that. You know, I'm, I'm going to work that one out. And you get, you get caught up in it, but you can't work it out with your intellect. Uh -huh. You can't. And so it's like you're stuck. Like, I thought I was smart, but I can't work this out. And so it, it, it draws you in. You know? And if you stay with it long enough, do you know if you've got the, got the courage to stay with it long enough, <coughs> then you allow that stuckness to humble you. Like, well, actually, I don't know. You know, I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. Wasn't as smart as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. It's humbling. And as that breaks down, you know, and, and as the intellect can't work it out, then you drop into life as it is. And when you drop into life as it is, then you can respond to the calm. So, then works in mysterious ways sometimes or direct ways, but they all lead back to just this. So, if we describe the process a little bit more, what happens um, with sitting practice is that it's a matter of just letting things be. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the process of it. It starts off with just letting things be. And that includes, importantly, not just letting the sound of birds just be, you know, or the colour of flowers to just be, but allows just being yourself, letting yourself to just be. Mm -hmm. This body, this feelings that come and go, these sensations that come and go, these thoughts that come and go, these perceptions that come and go, this consciousness which I call me. It's just letting that be too. Not getting caught up in psychologising it, you know, or philosophising about it, or analysing it, just letting the self be. And it's important that we let it just be because the next step is kind of letting go, letting go of thoughts, letting go of um, expectations, demands, etc. Um, but if we don't let it just be at first, letting go can be a way of kind of a, a, a more subtle form of avoidance. I'll just try and get rid of it, I'll get rid of the things I don't like. You know, so it's a kind of anxiety board and get to push things away. So we need to just let things settle and let things be. Then maybe work on letting them go. And then when we let things go, there's another step, which is letting in. Mm -hmm. Letting life nurture us, allowing the sunlight in, allowing the oxygen in allowing the love of others in, allowing the kindness of others in. Mm -hmm. And then there's the next component too, which is letting out, which is then letting the, um, the generosity within ourselves, or the kindness or the compassion in ourselves to let it out. 
right? Like St. Francis with the lepers. Or other simple little acts that happen in our life. Letting be, letting go, letting in, letting out, giving and receiving, like the flowers and the human beings. We're part of both. Some of the hindrances that um, come into Zen practice and what is part of letting be and letting go is doubt and um, everyone to some degree, I can certainly relate to it um, earlier in my life, is that we sit and then it's like we've got this constant kind of voice of doubt which keeps kind of interfering or interrupting with life as it is. And, and it's often along the lines of, um, am I meditating right? Do you know? Was I mindful just then? I just thought I was being mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, am I really concentrating? I'm not sure whether I know how to do this properly or not. What's the right way of doing it? Mm. Am I doing it? So all of that goes on, do you know? and it's like a commentary on the process. And it, and it can take a while before it actually drop, drops away. Mm-hmm. So all of that can occur. And the other thing that can occur, which is it's kind of its opposite, is, is where we, we get a bit inflated, you know, the ego gets a bit inflated about what we've achieved or whatever. Kind of a, Trotman Trumper referred to it as spiritual materialism. Perhaps I think it may be a, a better way of describing it as spiritual narcissism. You know, it's that we, this idea that we're making spiritual progress, where in fact there's the progress to be made, actually. Mm-hmm. The progress of no progress. <laughs> so, to go back to my talk of yesterday when we were talking about the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame, ignominy, or getting attention, not getting attention. Mm-hmm. Suchness is what is left when those eight winds stop blowing us around. Mm -hmm. It's the stillness which is there when we're no longer being blown around by that duality, by by those opposites and all of the grasping and aversion that comes with it. And it's a peace of mind which is not just the peace of mind of samadhi, you know, or increasing the endorphins in the brain, which comes as a result of doing a meditation retreat. That's what occurs, that's what in Zen would be called you know, samadhi consciousness. Is that peacefulness comes through concentrating the mind. But there is a, a deeper kind of peace um, which comes from being untangled from that grasping and aversion, when, when all of the winds die down and stop blowing us around. And that's a kind of peace that endures beyond just the quietness and order of session. Mm-hmm. 
that's the kind of realisation, that's the peace that endures um, into everyday life. Mm -hmm. So one leads to the other. <coughs> but it's those eight worldly winds settling down, no longer blowing, no, no longer pushing us around. That's what drops. Um, the peace that surpasses all understanding. <coughs> 